Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. If you have a Bible on your phone, feel free to click over to Matthew chapter 12. Um, I miss you guys a lot the past couple weeks. Uh, I haven't been here. Uh, we went to the beach for a week for vacation. Uh, it was a great time. Uh, we have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, so it was not restful, but it was fun. Um, it was at, there was not a boring moment, I'll put it that way. Nobody could have ever accused us of getting bored while we were at the beach with our kids. Uh, so what we did is on the way back from the beach, my wife Anna and I dropped our two kids off with my parents, a little grandparent camp for a week, uh, and then Anna and I had our vacation in Knoxville for the next week while our kids were there. So it was great. Knoxville's a great place to vacation. If you've never been there, it's a really cool spot. So um, you should totally visit sometime. But that was where I've been the past couple weeks. I missed you guys a ton. I'm excited to be back here this morning, hopping back into our Matthew teaching series. If you're brand new here today, like I said earlier, welcome. Super glad you're here. Uh, just for context so that you know, uh, really uh, on and off since I believe last August, uh, we have been just walking through the book of Matthew in the Bible, sort of passage by passage, story by story, seeing what we can learn from the life and ministry of Jesus, since that's really what Matthew is all about. And right now, we are in a section of the book of Matthew that really focuses in on various people's responses to the kingdom of Jesus. As Jesus is sort of traveling around announcing his inbreaking kingdom, that was the primary part of his message, primary topic of his message. As he goes about announcing the inbreaking kingdom of God, different people respond in all sorts of ways to that message and to that ministry. And so far, what we've been looking at for the past month or so is we've been mainly looking at negative responses to Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, or, or at least subpar responses to Jesus. So we've looked at people that, that struggle to believe in who Jesus is, people who respond by rejecting Jesus or even outright opposing him, wanting to kill him, is something we looked at the past few weeks. But today, we're actually going to shift gears a little bit, and we're not going to talk about negative responses to Jesus and his kingdom. We're actually going to talk about the right response to Jesus and his kingdom. What does that look like? In this passage that we're going to dig through today, Jesus lays out for us what it looks like to respond correctly to his kingdom and what the implications are of us doing so. What does it look like to receive the kingdom of God with open arms and what happens as a result when we respond that way? That's what today is all about. And I'll tell you right off the bat, the good news is that the right response to Jesus and his kingdom is relatively simple. It's very straightforward. Now, that's not to say it's easy, right? A lot of us that have followed Jesus for a long time realize that even when something is simple, that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, but it is simple. It's straightforward. 
If you've been with us for much of this series, you know we've been covering these long sections of Matthew each and every week where there's lots of different ideas and we sort of have to figure out how they all tie together and why Matthew chose to place them together. But today, we are going to cover five verses and five verses only. But in these, Marcus said amen, he's ready for a short sermon. I don't know that I can promise a short sermon, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So we're only covering five verses, but in those five verses, there is one simple idea that contains some pretty groundbreaking, paradigm-shifting sort of stuff. So let's dig in together and see what we can learn. Pick it up with me in chapter 12, starting in verse 46. Here's what it says. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone went and told him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So Jesus' family, namely his mother and brothers in this passage, show up and they want to talk to Jesus about something. So they send someone into the house where Jesus was teaching and doing ministry and they go to let him know. Now, in the version of this same passage that we find in the Gospel of Mark, we get a little bit extra detail about why his mother and brothers were coming to talk to him. It tells us in Mark that the reason they come to talk to him is because at this point in the story, Jesus' family thinks that he is out of his mind. They think he's crazy. So he's saying all kinds of things. He's traveling from town to town. But perhaps most significantly, if you remember the past two Sundays with us, he is now directly challenging the religious establishment. He's saying things like they don't know how to hear from God and they don't know how to walk in relationship with God. You need to know that in an ancient honor-shame society like the one Jesus lived in, that is crazy talk. You don't do that. And the fact that he is doing this is likely bringing all sorts of dishonor and disrepute upon his own family. So they come to talk to him because they think he's off his rocker. That's their agenda here. And if they thought he was crazy already, I wonder what they thought about his response to them coming to talk to him. Continue with me in verse 48. It says, he replied to him, him being the guy that came and told him his mom and brothers were there to talk to him. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, you've got to think this is an awkward moment for the guy that came to tell Jesus about what was happening, right? Like, if you're, if you're him, you're going, wait, so I have to explain to the Messiah the concept of a biological family? Surely that cannot be my job in this moment. That cannot be up to me to explain that to the Son of God. Thankfully, Jesus saves him, verse 49, pointing to his disciples, pointing around him. He said, here, right right here around me are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus turns this interruption from his family into a teaching opportunity of sorts. He says he considers everyone and anyone who does the will of God to be his family. So the right response that we were talking about earlier that we alluded to in the beginning, the proper way to respond to the inbreaking kingdom of Jesus is to, quote, do the will of God. That's what we're looking for. That's it. That's the whole idea. That's the big idea right there, to do the will of God. 
And, and by that, what he means is that we are to align our lives with the things that are clearly taught in the scriptures about how life works. So he's talking about things like using our money and our resources, like the scriptures teach us to use our money and our resources. He's talking about approaching sex and sexuality like the scriptures teach us to approach those things. He's talking about going about relationships and friendships in the way that the scriptures teach us to go about those things. In a word, what Jesus means by, quote, doing the will of my Father in heaven is simply discipleship to Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Doing the will of God is about discipleship. It's about ordering our lives around Jesus and the way that he says life truly works. And Jesus says, if you respond in that sort of way to the kingdom of God, if you respond by orienting your life around those things, you are his family. Doing things God's way means you are God's family. Now, just for clarity, when Jesus uses the word family, when he talks about other people being his, his mother and his sisters and his brothers, that doesn't just mean that he's closer to those people than he is to other people. That might be how we are tempted to read it in the 21st century, because after all, that's what we would mean by that language, right? We all the time say, people that are, say that people are like family to us, or they're like a brother, or like a sister, or they're like a second mom to us. We use that language all the time. But in the society Jesus existed in, you didn't talk that way about other people that weren't your family, really, ever. The only people who were like family to you in that day were your family, your biological family members were the closest human relationships that you had, and no other relationship was even on par or even comparable to those relationships. We know from history that many people in this day and age were actually closer to their mother, father, and siblings than they were to their own spouse. So for Jesus to say that these people were not only like his family, but that they were his family would have created anything from shock to outright offense in those that heard it. This was an appalling thing for someone to say, especially someone who claimed to be a religious authority of any sort. It would have created offense to first century ears, but Jesus says it just the same. And just for you to know, in the rest of the New Testament, if you read through the rest of the Bible, the biblical authors, the other biblical authors, take this language from Jesus and they run with it. This idea of followers of Jesus being called family is all over the rest of the Bible. The most common word used in the Bible to refer to followers of Jesus isn't the word Christian. That word's only used about three times. It's not even the word disciple. You know what it is? It's the Greek word adelphoi, which translated into English as brothers and sisters. So evidently, when we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, we are necessarily talking about belonging to God's family. One Bible commentator actually pointed out that we as Christians, we have all sorts of theological words and concepts to talk about the individual aspect of becoming a Christian. So we say that we are saved, we are justified, we are sanctified, we are redeemed. We have all these different words to talk about the individual aspect of being reconciled to God. But we don't really have any words to talk about the interpersonal aspect of being reconciled to God. And in the Bible, that part is every bit as important. So this morning, I would like to propose that we add a new word to our theological vocabulary. 
You ready? Henceforth and forevermore, when we follow Jesus, we are also family-fied. What you think? Maybe? Maybe not? I think it could work. I really think it could work. If somebody has like a connection to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, let me know. I really think we could get this thing going. But when we decide to follow Jesus, that's what happens. We're, we're family-fied. We are made into a family due to this new relationship with God through Jesus. But that said, we do have this idea of family built into one of the primary metaphors for becoming a follower of Jesus, and that's the metaphor of adoption. Adoption. So Ephesians, Romans, Galatians, plenty of places in the New Testament describe becoming a Christian as being adopted by God the Father. Being adopted. And when we get God as our father, we also gain a bunch of new brothers and sisters. That's just how a family works. And inversely, we don't get to claim God as our father and not claim other followers of Jesus as our brothers and sisters. That's just not how it works. And yet, that is what many Christians, I'd say especially here in America, have attempted to do at least at a functional level. We say things like, yeah, I love Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm just not big on the church. My relationship is really just between me and God. It's personal. It's private. I don't really participate in the whole communal, institutional church thing. But you need to know that that logic makes absolutely zero sense from a biblical perspective. To put it as directly as I know how to put it this morning, there is no category in the Bible for a follower of Jesus who is not in deep relationship with other followers of Jesus. It's just not a category. Uh, occasional church attender is not a category in the Bible. Regular church attender is not a category in the Bible. In the Bible, you have followers of Jesus who actively belong to a church family and then you have people who are not followers of Jesus. Those are the two categories that exist. And my concern is that many people, especially here in the Bible Belt, have tried to create a category of Christian that is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. We've created this subset of Christianity where you attend church on the weekends, you get your spiritual shot in the arm from the music or the sermon or whatever, and then you go about the other six days of your week with little to no interaction with other followers of Jesus. And we've tried to convince ourselves that that is a faithful way to follow Jesus. The problem is that it isn't. If you were to take that approach to church and try to find it in the New Testament, you would not be able to find it. In fact, that behavior, that way of going about life would look a lot more like a non-Christian in the New Testament than it would like a Christian. Now, before we move on, I do just want to acknowledge something briefly, and that's that I realize that probably to no small number of us in this room, the word family is a very difficult metaphor for us. Quite a few of us, when we hear the word family, it is not pleasant memories that come to mind at all. It's painful ones. And at some point in the future, what I want us to do as a church is to do an entire teaching or maybe an entire series on our families of origin and how to process and heal from and deal with some of those realities that many of us have been through. So I'm not going to go into all the detail on that this morning. But I will say this, if that's you, 
Often the reason that those experiences with our biological family can be so painful is precisely because they are examples of our family being the opposite of what a family was meant to be. That's usually the problem. Instead of your family being a place of safety and healing and comfort and grace, it has somehow become a place of danger and hurt and pressure and condemnation. So as we wrestle through the teachings of Jesus this morning, if that's you, I would just plead with you to see this, that the problem at its core is not actually the idea of family. That's not the problem. The problem is not the concept of family. The problem is that many of us have experienced expressions of family that are completely opposite of what family was meant to be. And in actuality, if that's you, if it's hard for you to wrestle with the idea of family because you've got hurt, you've got baggage from your family of origin, in reality, if that's you, you might understand even better the necessity of a good, loving, safe family because you know the pain that is associated with its absence. So if anything, all of us together should see that the problem is not the idea of family. The problem is that family has sometimes been expressed in really unhelpful ways. But all that said, here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want us to try to drill all of this down to some practicals and specifics as much as we can. So we've got this overarching concept that followers of Jesus, when we disciple ourselves around Jesus and the things that he says matters, when we do that, we become a family, that the church is meant to function like a family. We've got this overarching concept, but I want us to talk about what the hands-level implications are of that concept. What does it mean then for us to function, to operate as God's family on a regular basis? I think we could say that it means at least three things. This is sort of 101 level, but hopefully it's helpful. Three things that being family means. First, being family means committing to being together. Committing to being together. If we are going to embody life together as God's family, we are going to have to commit to physically being present with each other on a regular basis. For instance, take a look at this glimpse we get of the early church in Acts chapter 2. We'll put this up on the screen. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, how many days? Every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Did you catch how many times the author used the word together in that passage? Quite a few. It says they met together, they ate together, they had everything in common. I love that in the first verse we read, it just says they were together. In other words, when people thought about the early followers of Jesus, they just thought, oh yeah, those, those are those people that are just together a lot. They hang out together a lot. That's how people thought about the early followers of Jesus. It also says that the early church was together one way or another every single day. Did you see that? They were together every day. Now, Real quickly, before you get alarmed, I'm not going to sit here and, and try to say that every single one of us should hang out with every single one of us every day, okay? That would be pretty impossible with a lot of our schedules. There are some reasons that back then it was a little more possible than it is today. But here's what I, here's what I will say about that. 
if at a bare minimum, we cannot make it a priority to have quality time with other followers of Jesus once a week outside of this time right here, there's just no way for us to embody what Jesus has in mind for his people. There's just no way. If our approach to being around our life group, for instance, is to say, yeah, I mean, I'll be there as long as there's not something else that I'd rather be doing, that's just not going to work. If our mindset is, yeah, I'll hang out with other followers of Jesus as long as they're doing something fun that I really like doing, that's just not going to work. If our mindset is, yeah, I'll be at life group as long as it hasn't been a stressful week so far, that won't work either. I don't know about you guys. Like I mentioned earlier, I've got two small kids. Uh, both me and my wife work outside the home. If I only went to life group when my week wasn't stressful so far, I would be there like once a year. And that's it. Like I just show up the week after Christmas and be like, good to see you guys again. See you next year. You know, like I, that's just not how life works. So for us to be the family that God has called us to be, our commitment level to one another is going to have to be a little bit stronger than just, yeah, if I feel like it. But I do want to make sure you see why that is. So that's the what. Let's talk about the why really quickly. The why is that relational intimacy in a relationship is almost always proportional to the level of commitment in a relationship. I'll say that again. Relational intimacy in a relationship is almost always proportional to the level of commitment in a relationship. If you want relational intimacy, if you want deep, meaningful friendships with other followers of Jesus, you are going to have to put a certain level of commitment into that friendship for that to happen. So it's really easy to see this when it comes to a marriage. Uh, if you got married, and we got a lot of city church people that are getting married lately. If you got married and you said to your spouse on your wedding day, hey, you know what? I, I really want to do this whole marriage thing with you. I'm really excited about it. I, I'd like to be very close to you relationally. I'd like for us to have a really deep relationship with each other. But here's the thing. I, I also would love to keep my options open and, and, unless something else comes along, you know? Like, I, I just, I, it's, other things might come along at some point, so I just want to keep my options open, but I do want to be close to you. What's going to happen to the level of relational intimacy between you and your spouse if you approach it that way? Not great things, Right? Because that's not how a relationship works. Almost always, the level of intimacy you experience with a person, relational intimacy, meaningfulness in that relationship, is proportionate to the level of commitment. If you want meaningfulness out of a friendship, you have to be willing to put some commitment in. So when it comes to community, when it comes to other followers of Jesus that you're trying to live life alongside, if you want to maintain a very loose level of commitment to them, to other followers of Jesus, if you just want to be around them when you feel like it or when you don't have something else that you'd rather be doing or when you're not stressed out, you can totally do that. That's your prerogative. You can totally choose to approach those relationships in those ways. But as a fair warning, that is going to negatively impact the meaningfulness of those friendships. It just will. You cannot treat other people in your life as if they're expendable and then expect to experience meaningful friendship with them. That's just not the way that friendship works. But if we can put commitment into our relationships and friendships, 
we will get meaningful relationships and friendships out as a result. Not instantly, not immediately, not automatically, but over time as we persist in those relationships as followers of Jesus. And that looks like, bare minimum, committing to being together on a regular basis. Does that make sense to everybody? Head on? Love it. Okay, next two will be a little bit shorter, I think. Being family, number two, looks like having healthy expectations for each other. Looks like having healthy expectations for each other. If we are going to continue becoming the type of family that God has called us to be, we are going to need to have healthy expectations of one another. And sometimes that's tough because a lot of us have a tendency at times to idealize human relationships. One of the easiest ways to see this, again, is when it comes to our perspective on romantic relationships. So a lot of people believe that, or at least at a functional level, they believe that finding the perfect person to marry will meet all of their relational needs and will make them permanently happy as a result of getting married. And then for those of us that get married, we find out fairly quickly in that relationship, oh, wait, that's not what this is. (laughs) That's not how this relationship works. Marriage is great in a whole lot of ways, but it's not that. It's not perfectly relationally satisfying. It doesn't lead to eternal bliss with the person that you're married to. And so a lot of times what happens is when those expectations in a marriage are not met, when the other person does not meet all of our relational needs, we either become disillusioned or bitter or resentful or we start to crush our spouse under the expectations that we have for them because nobody can live up to those ideals perfectly. Nobody can meet all of your relational needs except for Jesus. Now, you may have never thought about it this way, but sometimes I think we have a similar tendency, a similar problem when it comes to our spiritual community, when it comes to other followers of Jesus. When it comes to relationships with them, it's like we want to connect with other people effortlessly. We want to immediately become best friends with them with very little effort. We want them to push us and challenge us, but not push us too hard or challenge us too much or at the wrong times. We want them to reach out to us at all the right times and know just the right things to say, but then we don't want them to lay any expectations on us in return. If we're honest, what we want is for other followers of Jesus to meet all of our spiritual and relationships and emotional needs, whatever those might be. And if we're not careful, we can begin to crush our community with our expectations of them. A guy you may, have heard, you may have heard of before named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it this way in his excellent book called Life Together. He says this, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Those are some strong words. He who loves his dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. That quote gets me every time (laughs) because I do that. I think a lot of us do that. We want our Christian community to be this perfect thing that meets all of our relational needs and all of our expectations. And often when it isn't that, if we're not careful, we grow bitter and frustrated and resentful 
at the people who didn't meet those expectations. And often what happens is that we let that bitterness and frustration grow and it goes unchecked and it ends up destroying the community we're a part of because everyone else lives in fear of not meeting our expectations. So what Bonhoeffer is saying is that if you want the community around you to thrive, you have got to get just as good at loving the community itself as you are at loving the idea of community you have in your head. In other words, we need healthy expectations of our community. The people in your community are sinful and flawed people, just like you are, who desperately need the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, just like you do, and will probably do an imperfect job at loving other people, again, just like you do. So if you go into a community of followers of Jesus expecting them to do perfectly what no human being, including you, has ever been able to do perfectly, that's not going to go much of anywhere. Instead, what we need to do is go into a community expecting them to be imperfect people who are learning and growing and trying to become more like Jesus just like we are. So they very well may forget to call or text when they said they would call or text. They very well may say something that is offensive or insensitive to you. They very well may do something that is unintentionally hurtful to you. But listen, if we understand ourselves correctly, if we see ourselves through the lenses of Jesus, we understand that we are capable of all the same shortcomings that they are. And God has grace and compassion for us. So why would we not show that same grace and compassion towards others? What reason do we have for not relaying that to them? If we can manage to do that, if we can manage to approach other followers of Jesus in that way, we will find that over time, our community actually becomes what it can be, what it should be as a result. But it has to start with healthy expectations of other followers of Jesus. Finally, last one we'll do and then we'll be done. Being family also looks like navigating conflict well together. Navigating conflict well together. Here's the reality. When you spend large, frequent amounts of time with someone, you are going to experience conflict with that person. It's just gonna happen. Think back to the family metaphor. Has anybody ever experienced conflict with their family? Once or twice in your life, maybe? Anybody, anybody ever been in a fight with their brother or sister? Once or twice a day, maybe, right? I mean, this is just how family works, right? Okay, now why is that, though? Why, why do you experience conflict with your family? Well, it's probably because you've spent more concentrated amount of time around them than you have with anybody else in your life past or present tense, right? There's more history there. There's, there's tendencies there. There's, there's habits there. There's idiosyncrasies there that are hard to get past because you see your, your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad, you see them saying something or doing something and you immediately think of all the other times that reminds you of where they did something unhelpful. We, we fight with our family because we spend a lot of time around our family. That's generally how human relationships work. As a general rule, the more time you spend around someone, the more conflict is going to happen. So in light of that, 
Do you think that if we are truly sharing life together as a church family, we might occasionally have some conflict that we have to work through? I would think so, right? So we say this a lot around City Church. If you've been coming around for a few years, you are probably tired of hearing us say this, but I'm gonna keep saying it until it stops surprising us when it happens. The mark of a healthy church is not the absence of conflict. The mark of a healthy church is not the absence of conflict. It's just not. In fact, you show me a church that where nobody ever experiences conflict with other people in the church, and I will show you a church where nobody knows each other that well. If we ever stop experiencing conflict at City Church, that is when I personally, as your pastor, will be very worried because that means we're not sharing life together. It means we don't know each other. It means we're not hanging out with each other on a regular basis. And I say this, the reason that we feel the need to say this all the time is because so many people come around a church and at the very first hint of conflict or tension between them and someone else in the church, they just panic. They go, oh no, this must not be where we're supposed to be. This must not be a healthy church. This must not be a good church. And they quietly fade off into the background or they just leave and go to another church. And the devastating thing about that is that working through interpersonal conflict is one of the primary means that God wants to use to grow and mature you as a follower of Jesus. One of my favorite quotes of all time is is by a guy named Joseph Hellerman. He wrote a fantastic book called When the Church Was a Family. If you want to dig more into all of this, would highly recommend that book to you. He says this at one point in the book. He says, spiritual formation which is just a fancy way of saying becoming more like Jesus. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and their fellow human beings. This is especially the case, notice this part, this is especially the case For those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. I wonder sometimes how much growth I have forfeited in my life by trying to go around conflict rather than through it. You ever thought about that? And at the same time, I think about some of the most meaningful friendships, some of the most meaningful relationships that I have in my life to this day, and nearly every single one of those relationships are relationships where we have experienced significant conflict and we've worked through it together. I think Joseph Hellerman is on to something with what he said. Our relationships with each other are the relationships that God wants to use to grow us, to establish us, to mature us. These are the relationships that God has put in our lives for our own good, to make us more and more like him. So the mark of a healthy church is not the absence of conflict. The mark of a healthy church is how conflict gets dealt with. It's how conflict gets dealt with. Do we go around it? Do we avoid it? Or do we go through it? 
Do we abandon a relationship at the first sign of conflict or tension? Do we, do we try to ignore the conflict and pretend like everything's okay and just talk about stuff on a surface level when it's not? Or do we navigate through conflict, having faith that the Holy Spirit who is alive in us and the other person will help us get through it together as a church family? That's what we're going for. Being family means navigating conflict well with each other. So, I don't know where any of this hits you this morning. Maybe for you, uh, you are realizing that you need to put a little more effort, a little more emphasis on being together with other followers of Jesus. Maybe you need to think through how to prioritize that sort of time in your life more than you do now. Or maybe the most practical step of application for some of us is to just sign up for that life group. We've been thinking about it for a while. You hear us talk about it every week and it's annoying to you, but you're like, maybe I should do that. And maybe the most helpful point of application for you is I'm going to finally sign up for that life group. So maybe that's it for you. Maybe for you, it's more that second point. Maybe for you, you need to do some reflecting and adjusting of the expectations that you've put on other followers of Jesus. Maybe you need to go and apologize to somebody for expecting them to do something perfectly that nobody can do perfectly. Maybe there's conflict between you and another follower of Jesus. Maybe there's, there's tension, there's frustration, there's awkwardness, there's relational distance there, and you need to stop navigating around it and instead work through it with them. You need to deal with the conflict with the power of the Holy Spirit guiding you along the way. Whatever it is, whatever you need to do, let's remember this morning that God has made us a family. When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just reconciling us with God, he was also reconciling us with one another. And he was making a way for reconciliation to happen with one another. So whatever efforts we put in to that end, are undoubtedly worth it because we are joining with King Jesus in his mission on planet Earth by the power of the Spirit. So we're going to sing some songs here in just a minute or two. But can I just encourage you not to just stand and sing if the Holy Spirit is prompting you first to obey. If that needs to be your act of worship, don't dodge it. God has too much good in store for you. He has too much good in mind. He has too much growth intended for your life to just dodge his means of growing and maturing you in that way. So is he first prompting you to obey, to repent, to take a step of action in some way? If something needs to happen there, that is the more urgent thing. That's the step that you need to take, and I would encourage you to do that as an act of worship instead. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who has made reconciliation possible for us. Gotta think of the the pictures we get in the New Testament of you reconciling people groups that wanted nothing to do with one another at all. And it says that you broke down the wall of hostility that was dividing them and you made them one 
So God, our prayer is that you would do exactly that in this room this morning, in our church family this morning. Um, God, that by the power of your spirit, made possible by the cross and the resurrection that you would make us one. God, for those of us that have just tried to go it alone as a, as a lone ranger Christian, God, I pray that you would show us the good that is found in belonging to a church family and living life together with them. God, I pray that we wouldn't see it as an inconvenience, we wouldn't see it as an interruption to our life, but we would see it as something that you have put in place as a means of grace to help us become more and more like you. God, for those of us that uh, maybe are realizing in this moment that we put all kinds of expectations on our community that are unfair, disproportionate, or that are just too high for them to meet. God, would you help us to see ourselves as in need of grace and, and therefore would you help us offer that grace to other people when they fail? God, I so badly want our church not just to be a church that, that preaches grace or talks about grace. I want us to be a, a church with a culture of grace that we relate to one another with grace and compassion and mercy and understanding on our lips. So God, would you help us adjust expectations? If we need to apologize for expectations that we've laid on other people, God, would you give us the courage to do that this morning? And then finally, if there is conflict, if there is tension, Jesus, you tell us in Matthew chapter five that if we're going to worship you, if we're coming to bring our gift to the altar and we realize that there's something between us and another follower of Jesus, that we should drop everything, forget everything we were doing for the moment and that we should go and make that right. And so God, I pray that you would put that heart posture in us this morning by your spirit. If there's something that is off between us and another follower of Jesus, I pray we wouldn't keep going around it. I pray we wouldn't keep ignoring it. I pray that we would deal with it head on. And that as we do that, we would offer grace and compassion, that each person in the scenario would offer grace and compassion and understanding, that we would assume the best of one another and not the worst. And God, that you would bring greater unity within our body to make you known. So God, whatever we need to do, whatever steps of repentance we need to take, God, I pray we wouldn't put them off. I pray we wouldn't avoid them. I pray we wouldn't pretend that they're not there. I pray we wouldn't stop up our ears and refuse to hear from you, but that we would hear and that we would respond. So God, would you do that in our midst? We ask you by your power, by your spirit, to do that in our midst this morning. In the name of Jesus and for his fame and glory, we pray.